Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us again on the Broken Oars podcast with my co-host, Aaron Jackson, man of enormous northernness and very little kidney. I want to say we have moved past the trolling. We have moved past the difficult second album of uh, Broken Oars podcast, and this is us getting back to our roots, getting back to what we know best. We have an interview with Terence Chipchase. Now, you may not know Terence, but there is a very, very strong likelihood that if you've ever raced at Henley, you've raced straight past Terence, and he's told everyone else on the race course how far ahead or behind you are. We, we kind of let Terence just tell us stuff, and he's got a thousand and one stories. He is someone who, since the late 80s, has absolutely loved this sport and has pretty much occupied every single role in the sport. He's been a volunteer, he's been an umpire, he's been a coach, he's been a rower. He's done it all, frankly. Dr. Jackson, do you have any, any thoughts on, on our little interview? Oh, I thought you were just going to keep going there, Dr. Hine. Teasing aside, Lewin has hit the nail bang on the head yet again. I, I love the, um, the difficult second album metaphor for Jürgen Gate. I'm just kind of trying to mentally map where we are then in terms of that with regards to some, some bands that I might know or you might know. So basically, episodes one and two are kind of like Iron Maiden and Killers. Episode three with Die was, was essentially the number of the beast. And we've, um, we've had the Cox's Four episode. That would have been kind of peace of mind if we're talking Iron Maiden here. And we're now getting into kind of the realms of Power Slave and Somewhere in Time, which if you are a heavy metal or rock fan, you will recognize as venerable classics of the genre and i think that actually yes we've gone past the trolls we've, we've moved on from them they are in our rear view mirror and we just had a fascinating ramble through rowing over the last two or three decades just one other thing quick piece of housekeeping after last week's rather scandal-laden episode a few people picked me up on twitter and they were noticing that in terms of the east german doping program it was very much about what we term the androgenic anabolic steroids, particularly a compound made by an East German pharmaceutical company. You, you get an idea of how deep the, the corruption in East Germany went. It was something called oral chiranabol. In general, it has a very good reputation amongst the people who use such things for performance enhancing purposes. But typically it's, it's thought to be a compound um, that improves strength and explosive strength and all these things. And while this is absolutely true, and it doesn't have necessarily the same effects as erythropoietin in terms of endurance performance, it is something that will allow you to train harder, to train for longer, to train more frequently. So it increases your training capacity it probably does have an erythropoietic effect and all of these effects will be more pronounced in women and there will be a greater effect in women than in men. Just a little clarification on that point. Hence their use in the GDR um, female programs, I would Indeed. imagine. If you are playing the Thames Tradesman Broken Oars drinking game this evening, um, your cards will include keywords uh, like Peterborough. That can be the regatta or the head, but also as a bonus card, you can uh, drink on the word pin, pitch and set because they are talked about too. Normal rules apply, have fun.
I think it's best if we just kind of let Terence take it away from here. We have our second interview today um, with Terence Chipchase, currently member of the Stewards, member of Leander Club, and a charitable member of Ardingly and Sheffield resident. Terence, why don't you uh, give us a little sort of history of yourself? Where did you grow up and which master's category are you in? Well, I'm 49 years old, whatever category that is. That's a great category. We're all pretty much in, in that kind of ballpark category. I think. Yeah, it, it, it's a great category. It's also a bloody competitive one. The last time I competed was in the mid-2000s. And um, I'd, forgotten that, I'd forgotten how uh, competitive I was. It was, a, it was an extremely important race. It was a, a mixed veteran quad at Bradford Regatta over 600 metres. And we were all over our opposition. And then the, the lady, lady at two, caught an enormous boat stopper and we lost the race. And um, so I stormed off and completely threw my toys out of, the, out of the pram. And so if I can get that upset about that, then I think that says quite a lot. Yeah, but to, to, to be honest, I, I, I think... I can think of several races that I've uh, I've been through with that kind of result and and where I was in a similar mood afterwards. It still be yeah, with thrashing them. It was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> the competitive beast never goes. Yeah. Anyway, rest about me. I I grew up in mainly in coastal places which had Butlins camps because that's who my father worked for. So throughout my upbringing, we kept moving. So I lived in Filey, Minehead, Clacton. And Skegness, and that's where I went to secondary school. I went to Skegness Grammar School, okay. and then from there I came to Sheffield and went to university, and I've lived, lived here ever since. Was it the the classic university route in? Well, it depends what you call classic university route in. I did. Hear, I remember hear, hearing about your own, like you were sort of tapped up for rowing. I went on holiday with some some friends, a camping holiday to the south of France in 1993 in the summer, and. One of them was a guy, one of the guys who was a friend of mine brought a friend of his called Hank from uh, Worcester. And these two had rowed together at Worcester Rowing Club. And, that, and when we were just, you know, chatting in the evenings, these two guys would talk about rowing. And I just thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Because those, those guys rowed elite. Uh, you know, as okay. it was called at the, at the time, and they were really good. I mean, they, they used to just win everywhere, all over the place. His first name was Mark. I can't remember his surname, but it was called Mowgli, and he was about five foot eight. But okay. my God, he could row. Yeah. And he was absolutely amazing. And so these guys would talk about rowing. I thought, I tell you what, when we get back to Sheffield, I'm going in search of this. And so when I did get back to Sheffield, I went in search of it. And uh, in Sheffield, we row on a piece of water called Danflask Reservoir and that's where City of Sheffield Rowing Club and both universities so Hallam and Sheffield Uni yeah. share two boathouses and the same water and I was at Hallam University at the time and the two neither of the two university clubs were big enough to really field crews on their own so the, we used to row together so we used to compete under the banner of Sheffield Universities Mm. So I've still got a effort with Sheffield Universities and the Crest and all that. 
there were, there were guys there. There was a bloke who'd uh, rode in the coupe, and um, there was a a guy whose brother founded Black Sheep Rowing Club. He was he was rowing there. And I've, I've, I've lost to them a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people have lost to them. <laughs> the, but the the biggest thing was there was a uh, a couple of women there. Um, one of one of whom was called uh, Ali Sanders. And the other one, Janet Vickers. And along with um, the, the, another couple, like Ellie and, uh, and Vicky. But Janet and Ali were in a, in a, they used to train in a double together. And they were just amazing. And I, I used to just watch them sail past with open mouthed admiration. And I just couldn't believe how good they were. And I'd never seen, I mean, I could, I, th- I think I, I was became aware of them after I'd actually tried rowing and then just got, got in and and the only time I'd really seen rowing was it, uh, watching the boat race. So of course it might, it looks easy mm. to the uninitiated. It looks easy. I mean, I it was just after the Barcelona Olympics. Now I I remember seeing the Searles and uh, Gary Herbert get their gold medals, but I didn't watch the race because I wasn't really into the sport. We, we, we watched the boat race because it was on the BBC, on the BBC and that's what we watched. But once I'd tried, uh, you know, in a clinker four, which we had two of at the time, God, they were heavy. Mm. So that's what I, they're the boats that start to row in with, uh, you know, timber oars, one of which is now in my kitchen, just over there. But once, you know, so I'd, I'd found out how difficult it was. And then I saw these two, these two women just serenely spanking the boat up and down the dam. And they were being coached by um, Rosie May Buckley. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. We, we definitely heard of Rosie. Um, <laughs> yeah, gonna... we, we're having a chat with Tristan about getting hit, him on the, on the show. Well, I, I remember him knocking about as a, as a wee boy at the time. Because uh, obviously her boys were with her, so uh, yeah, I mean he won't know me, but yeah, yeah, I mean I didn't know I didn't know his name, but it was just like Rosie's kids. I, I held this woman in just in complete awe because I was first of all I was in, in awe of Ali and Janet, and they were in awe of her. You could tell, and so yeah. I think well, this this woman must be you know absolute the absolute dog's what's it, and. And I tried to just absorb like a sponge as much information about the sport as I could from her. And, but she was busy and like, she was, she was very accommodating and like, you know, I've got to know her a bit more over the years, but really that was my introduction into rowing and why I wanted to get good at it. Um, because I'd seen a very good example very early on in my career of what rowing could be. And like that, um, that, that double, um, with uh, two other women called uh, Naomi and Sarah, Sarah Ray and Naomi Ascroft. Anyway, they won Women's Henley that year, and as a result, were selected to represent uh, England at the. It wasn't the Commonwealth Games, but it was a regatta attached to the Commonwealth Games in Canada. Yeah. And so, in our boathouse, there were two pairs because they they used to train. I think I think they split their time between. Um, I think it might have been Runcorn or somewhere like that and Sheffield, so they would uh, back and forth. And so for, for a time, we had two sets of skulls with the England rose painted on them, which I just thought was the coolest thing ever. It's you know, this, bad, really. it, it's just like this horrible old boathouse, which is full of cobwebs and, and 
nasty old boats, but they they had a shiny boat, of course, and um, and they, these two pairs of skulls, which was like you know, oh, kind of edge past, make sure you don't even breathe on them, sort of thing. You know, powerful women rowing is what made me want to get good at it. And as far as competition goes, I've I've never minded being beaten by people who I it's clear are better than me. So I'm not that competitive that it's like win at all costs. And also I'm not, I, I'm not and never have been really built for the sport because I'm only six foot tall and my physicality is more suited to tossing the caber than, than rowing. But studied the sport, watched videos, and I taught myself how to scull. And I, I remember um, watching the Olympic final, for, I think it was from Sydney, the bloke who won, I was watching him off the start, or they, was, they were concentrating on a particular chap off the start. And it, and it was clear that his blades were feathering in 90 degrees, but it didn't look like his hands were moving enough to move the blades that much. And so I was wondering, well, how is he doing that? How is, how is he doing that? And of course, the, I can see the, yeah, the, the roll. Uh, the roll Aaron's, of the fingers, yeah. That the roll of the fingers. But, yeah. I, but I, I, I spotted that by watching frame by frame on VHS, the start of of the Olympic Games. And so I thought, oh, right, that's how he's doing it. And so then I taught myself how to do that. And lo and behold, I could then, I could come up the slide <laughs> with my with flat hands and then just sort of flick with my thumbs, just flick the blades over, put them in and apply the pressure. And the feeling is like nothing else. I was absolutely delighted with my little self. It, it is a little, when it, when it comes together, it is a little bit like flying. And, you know, it, I, you know the, the people who have been unfortunate enough to have me as a coach in the past, I have just always tried to say, it is, you know, great sculling. The technique of great sculling always comes from the hands. That's, that's where it starts, Get, getting that, that flat hands together. Once you get that, everything else you can build on. How far did you end up going with the sport, Terence? Well, as an oarsman... I've won some things, but I'm trying to think of like favorite moments. The first one was when, well, the first one was when uh, we won our novices in a Cox four at Worcester. Actually, we, we were doing Worcester on the Hereford weekend. Worcester was first and we won. And we got so plastered that night that we could, <laughs> we could barely even, we could barely even open our eyes the following day, let alone compete. So we had to scratch from, from, uh, from, yeah. uh, Mon- and we weren't right for about a week, a week afterwards. <laughs> and and the the other one, so that was so that was that was senior. Sorry, no, that that was novices. And then we won senior three at Durham, which was very pleasing because it was a close close race. We we we'd knocked Newcastle University out in the in the heats, and they applauded us as we were coming back up the river to deboat at um, Durham Amateur. You know, I felt like a superman that day, even though it was only senior three. So that was really nice. And this, of course, is in the days before Newcastle has turned into, into the Leander of the North. Um, and the, my other favourite moment was in Coxless Pairs, Senior 2 Coxless Pairs at Ironbridge, uh, over, th- over a thousand metres, and we dead heated. And we just looked at our opposition, and they looked at us, and they're going, oh, no. Uh, the result, dead heat, turn around and go and do it again. Oh, oh. And we just made it made a pact with our opposition. We just said, "All right, well, we're going to we're going to go there really slowly to the start." We won the re-row by three feet. Oh, blimey, not bad. 
Is Ironbridge as a regatta as nice as it looks? Great regatta, and the water's really warm because of the power station. Ah, oh, that's always a classic. I remember putting my hands in the water to cool them down, and, it, and they were like, it was like putting, it, putting, putting them in a tepid bath. Yeah. Like, What's going on here? Yeah, so that, that whole kind of stretch of river kind of going down past the M5 with Cheeksbury and um, Ironbridge, Stourport, I think, those are the regattas that I most regret not being to because they just all seem lovely. So anyway, so yeah, so I started learning how to, how to rig a boat there because there was a guy um, who was one of the one of the crew, and he and he decided that he was going to just re-rig the boat from uh, stem to stern and just check everything and measure everything. He had all the tools and all that, and I was pestering him and learn, trying to learn how to do the rigging. And when I came to do my um, level two, or actually IA as it then was. I was really good at it, and they said that you know you should be you should be the lead in your club for for rigging because you know you've got the got the touch and you understand about it. You know you kind of get it. It was it was Pete Holmes with us. I mean, we Dennis always sets the boats up for the the men's squads, and he does a really good job. But it was like, it was actually where Pete got us together as a squad once he kind of took over coaching us. The kind of cogs start to turn, and you go, oh, of course, this is why you set, and this is why, and this is, and it all it it just it really helps you as a rower if you engage with that side of it, because it, it actually helps you to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Talking about rigging, many years later, um, in 2011, uh, the World Road Junior Championships were in were at Dorney, and they were doing a, a rigging survey for it's a FISA commission, hmm. uh, run by Rosie, actually. And um, I think she put a call out for, they needed a couple of extra people. So I said, oh yeah, that, I'd like to look at that. And the people that I met on that, on that rigging survey were it was an amazing group and like by the by the end of the week we were so slick and we, we measured 20 parameters per seat on 80 percent of the boats in the whole regatta mm. and so we would have to and we got permission from all the national governing bodies and all the national coaches uh, the guy in well rosie was overseeing the thing because she was on the um the visa rigging commission at the time um, so it was a FISA, it was a sort of FISA gig. So I got like an access all areas pass, all that stuff. Um, and the bloke who was actually running the team on the floor, on the, you know, on, on the floor, if you like, was a guy called um, Stephen Aitken, who um, has presented rigging seminars at coaching conferences and stuff. And he really knows, you know, his onions as far as that goes. So we, uh, so other members of the team, Rory Copas was on that team. That was the first time I met him. There was a guy who was a Cox for Leander Club. There was, you know, a, 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 I mean, like off the back of that, Rory came to give a, a, a talk to some of the people in Sheffield on Coxing. And uh, John Gill came to our wedding, <laughs> which was the following year. And... You know that was that that was a, an amazing thing, and and I learned so much about, you know, just to to be able to look at an international's boat and see how they're set up. And actually, you you some, sometimes we found glaring errors in the in in the setup. Right. And we actually went. To, I mean, we 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 didn't. All we were doing was measuring. We weren't changing anything on the boats because that's up to the coaches. So you know, it's up to the coaches and the athletes. Nothing to do with us. But there was one where we found that the the um, the span, particular single, the distance between the centre line and the uh, and the pin, was one and a half centimetres different on one side to to the other, and so we thought, hmm, that's interesting. So we told the coach, and he, and he went white, and and went immediately to fix it. 
So, and, and we found another couple of things like that, you know, where the, like the feet weren't even bolted on or something, you know, just, so if, if we picked up anything glaring, then we would tell the person concerned just in case, because it might have been deliberate for the, you know, the, 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 the difference yeah. might have been deliberate because they might have, that, that athlete might have had one arm massively longer than the other, you know, you just, you don't, don't know. It kind of leads it into the next question, but um, when you were talking about setups and all the rest of it, and I, I mentioned that um, obviously I knew a bit about it, but Dennis kind of did a lot of the gearing and setups for the the, the, the age crop men, um, and then Pete kind of taught us the intricacies of it, and I actually made us sort of take ownership of it. Do you think, especially talking about the international setups there, where there were mistakes made, is that something maybe rowers should engage with more i think i definitely i think that um rowers should know at least what the what the rig should be in their particular seats and they should know how to check it and know what equipment to use like for instance just people who don't know what a height stick is you know yeah. every rower should know what a height stick is and how it works and how to how to use it you know it's not rocket science i mean it's one it's one thing to decide on what a rig will be and to set a whole boat up that that takes real application and knowledge. I mean, I remember looking at, you know, just because I'm a nosy sod, if an eight comes out of the boathouse and he gets put on trestles, I'll just surreptitiously, even if there's nothing to do with me, I'll just surreptitiously go walk down one side and face all the swivels outwards. Okay, and then go and stand at one end and look down them. And you can see, you can see whether the, the spans are, the same or you can see any glaring errors and, mm. and also the heights and it, it's amazing how often you see you know it's, it, it goes up and down up and down like that rather than you should be able to see you should, should be like looking to a tube i'm going to try and do that to the opposition boat just to unnerve them <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> i'm that's just gonna just, just like wander past it and just like look down the line and just oh come on that's, <laughs> that's psychological warfare taking yeah, or, 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 yeah you could go like okay, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that's, see, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, if that's the I way you want to do it. Or just, just walk past decision. and go, yeah. Just, just walk past and go and say, yeah, interesting setup. I, 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 see, <laughs> I see what you're trying to do there. If you're a rower in a, in a, and you're, you're in a squad for an eight or you're in a four and you're going out regularly, you should take responsibility for your seat because um, you don't necessarily need to constantly be checking the boat setup because, as you say, it takes application and knowledge. But you can know if your if your rig has shifted or if your foot plate has shifted, and you you should know if there's something wrong with one of your slides or if it yeah. you know that kind of thing. That basic ownership um, and is pitch important. as well, and, and pitch the, the, the number, you know the number of times I've noticed that you know if you can visibly tell that the that the pitch is wrong, yeah, like glaringly wrong, then then fix it. Th then. <laughs> Well, I'm just, I'm just, um, I, it constantly and, and has constantly amazed me how people, they row over and over and over with, you can actually see that the working face is vertical. And, yeah. you know, that, that shouldn't be the case. That, that just going to different races and, and having fun and competing at different places, that's really important for the sport. Do you think it's gone out of it a little bit and there's more focus on kind of the bigger showpiece events or... You know, what are the big things that you think have changed, maybe? Well, when I, when I was competing, we didn't go south, apart from for the head of the river and the false head. Very wise, very wise. It's, um, it's and, not that bad down here. There, there, are, there are a few, like, 
sounding idiots who's like get away with like you know sounding right and getting better jobs than they should but other than that it, it it's okay <laughs> certainly at agecroft we did a we did a lot of going south but it was all for dorney you know we we, yeah. we never really went further than that a few well a few years before that the met actually used to be in in on the docks yeah you know, and they moved it to Dorney. I mean, because, well, I mean, the Met, when I was competing, when I started competing, the, like, Dorney wasn't even there. Were, were there two regattas on the docks then? Was it, Met, the, was it the Metropolitan and the and Docklands regatta? I don't I know if so. they overlapped, to be honest. I know that um, docks regatta, when I started, was a bit of a big thing. Yeah, you talked with, with Di about and 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 because we, we all grew up kind of racing on rivers that, that, it's fun. It teaches you to be a good waterman or water person. Um, and it's, it's a really fun way to kind of see the country and get involved in your sport. Has, has it been lost a bit with kind of moving, moving some, I mean, some of the Thames ones are now on Dorney. I know the town and the country is still on the, the, the Henley reach, mm. but um, I mean, what are the things do you think have, 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 have changed for the better or for the worse or that we lost that, that might help the sport or? Well, Sheffield still goes to uh, they go to St Neots, uh, Peterborough. Uh, I mean, when, when we talk about umpiring, um, you know, because I've, I've competed a lot of Peterborough and umpired a lot there. Um, so they go there, and you know, we go to York a lot because it's sort of fairly local. Also, Bradford Regatta because we're you know we're, we're we're part of the same region and. Mm. And Doncaster as well, because that's actually the closest uh, other club, you know, other yeah. club apart from the universities. It's you know, so we we co-organise, or people from City of Sheffield co-organise with Doncaster Road Club, the um, South Yorkshire head. And there's the head of the Don, which is coming up in the autumn, uh, which is organised by Doncaster. And it's you know, Doncaster is a great place because they've. They've got they've got cracking facilities there. They've got a lovely stretch of water. Yeah. Um. And you know what, what's not to like. Yeah. So, um. But, uh, you know, this is again touching on something that I've heard in one of your previous podcasts. Is that I think it was I think it might, might have been um, Lou saying that Agecroft used to just go to Dorney for for the three big three biggies. Marlow uh, was it Marlow the um, the Met and Met Marlow and Wallingford. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did do we did do some some at Holmes Pier Point and and that kind of thing, but particularly yeah. on the on the men's yeah, side, used... on, on the senior side, there was a there was a big focus in the head seat in the head season. Very similar to you, we were quite regional. Um, we would go to Peter, to Peterborough and Trent and, and places like that, but there was a lot of run corn Chester, Northwich, uh, Rutherford up in Newcastle, which is a fantastic head. Um, and that was focused towards kind of head of the river, where the you know the, getting the Jackson um, and then getting the other boats involved as high up the order as we could was a big thing. And yeah. then a, a lot of the focus was on trying to get as many of our of our squad and as many boats as possible to Henley, um, you, usually by qualifying at, at these at these bigger at these bigger regattas. And yeah. there used to be a bit of a tradition of going to places like Hollingworth Lake, where the sprints are fantastic. Yeah, I've been there um, once, been there once. Yeah, it was really good fun. And we used to do a weekend at uh, Gloucester, Bristol and Ross, which used to be over the bank holiday weekend, which is yeah. great fun. But yeah, Lewin we used to came, went and did that as well. 
Yeah, when 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 Lewin came up, he he was from a, a tradition of actually going off to you know the Saint Neots of, of this world and having having fun after Henley, but also before it. I always like rowing on a river as opposed to rowing on Dorney, um, maybe because my record at Dorney isn't that amazing. But um, it was just more kind of fun. Well, I've never rowed at Dorney, but I've I've, I've rowed at um, Pierpont and uh, Peterborough, and yeah. I've sunk there. You know, got <laughs> overwhelmed with water, and so you know, so we had to just swim the thing to the side and then carry the boat sopping wet back Where, to the boat. I think I've been fairly lucky with. Um, my home Pierpoint experiences. I've, I've had a few kind of sketchy days there, but some of the horror stories you hear from Nat schools and actually some of the horrible videos that you see of just boats sort of flying for the first kind of like 500 meters. And then as the fetch picks up and, and the waves start getting bigger and bigger, they just the boats just go slower and slower and they just end up grinding yeah. to a stop. And then you see all the hands in the boat go up and everybody starts waving. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely I, shocking. Yeah. I've, also, I've also, if I just chip in here, I don't, I, I don't want to just, I, I don't want to just sing out um, Nottingham. I've also sunk at Peterborough in, in a single. Okay. So, um, oh, fair enough. <laughs> fair so enough. I, I don't, I don't want to just, I don't want to just favour Nottingham. There are, you know, there are other places to sink out as well. It sounds like a, a BBC thing where they yeah. It sounds like a BBC a BBC thing where they go. Other providers are available. Other places to think <laughs> are available. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. um, I think that building Holmes Pierpoint there was actually a, a very deliberate thing on the part of British Rowing to build character uh, to build it in a in a in a, a wind tunnel. If if you can cope with that, then uh, you can pretty much cope with with anything. I, I think it was a strategic decision. It showed a lot of foresight, and it's it's produced generations of very very tough and very very bitter rowers so um thank you for that yeah <laughs> thank you british rowing thank you um, british it rowing. was incredibly kind of you so um you mentioned that you had like a degree of experience on the coaching side have you seen sort of in being involved in big changes in the way that people coach both on the water and physically so i've coached um women and men and much prefer to coach women because a they listen to you and b they appreciate what you do and c and d i'm yeah. running out of thumbs i'm running yeah. out of thumbs <laughs> yeah because men and especially novice men especially especially um students they have seen the boat race and they've seen the olympic games and all they want to do is pull as hard as they can and in doing so and doing so individually in a crew boat, it means they go precisely nowhere. First of all, you need to know, you need to learn what to do. And then once you've learned what to do and you can do it, then you can start trying to start trying to push hard off the footplate with the blade in the water, preferably. So, I mean, so ju just to move on, we have, um, I mean, as it says on your Twitter bio, you are a member of the stewards, but you also have some fairly critical roles to play at Henley. So why don't you let us, let us know a little bit about that? Certainly. Uh, well, just first of all, for, uh, I, haven't actually, uh, I haven't actually rode at Henley because I rode in the qualifiers, and that doesn't count. That doesn't mean that you have rode at Henley. When you, when you apply, when you fill in the form to apply for stewards membership, it says, "Have you rode? Have you rode at Henley Royal Regatta?" By the way, the qualifiers doesn't count. <laughs> so, so, 
you know, they tell brutal, you pretty much. Brutal, but they, So yeah. I, I, I have rode in the qualifiers for the Thames in 1997, and we didn't qualify, but we, were, we didn't embarrass ourselves. So what you're referring to is the signals team. Now, I uh, did this for a number of years, along with Mrs. Chip Chase, and what it involves, I mean, it's, it's, it's so onerous. It's so onerous because you get your own little box adjacent to the course. You have the best view in the house mm. and all these incredible crews come past you. And like, just for instance, the, fir- the, first, the first box is the quarter mile. Mm. And the, clu- the crews are usually quite close together by then. So the racing's really good. And you, get to, you can see the start from, from there. Uh, you can see the flag go down. Um, and then as the boats approach you, you look straight across the course and there's always a sighting flag on the other side, a little tiny one. It's like, you know, little nylon flag. When the lead, bow of the leading crew comes past you, you start counting. Or start, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That, and if it takes that long for the next crew to get there, then that's two lengths. Okay. okay. All right. So that's how you do the counting. And, um, and then when the umpires, when the back of the umpires launch comes level with you, you shout the separation to them. And that's what goes in the records. And that's what gets transmitted from the back of the launch to race control in the floater. And that's what goes out over the tannoy. So that's the quarter mile. The next one is the barrier where you do the same thing, but you also drop the flag, a yellow flag, and you hold it out in good time so that the people in the back of the umpire's launch can see you. And then as the leading bow passes you, you whip it down as quick as you can. That's then relayed to race control, and that's the time to the barrier. So the, the, the people at the back of the launch, so you've got three, you've got one reporter and two recorders and the two recorders are stewards and the reporter is like a member of the communications team which all the signals are as well <clears throat> and then there's the foley which you do the same thing but you also uh, they shout the time back at you that you've recorded and you hoist it in the in the board you know so if i was rowing there the time to fall would be something like four and a half minutes if you're oxford brooks it's something like two minutes 59 other stations, so there's a three-quarter mile, the mile, mile and eighth, the sliding boom, progress board, and the results board. And it's quite a, it's quite a, because when you go there as a as a rower, you're just thinking about your your race, and and you know you know about you know uh, the quarter mile, the barrier, time to four leave, you, you know the random roar, and you've heard all of this stuff from your coaches. But it's a very sophisticated system of feedback to get all of the, to get all of that information out and across um, mm. so that it's constantly being displayed and constantly being updated because it, it's yeah. not it's not electronic it's relying upon upon humans working in concert yeah it's a pleasure to do but it is it is quite tiring both physically because you're on your feet for, for up to four and a half hours you have to be delivered to the stations before you know in, in good time for the first race yeah and you don't get picked up until after the last race in in each session yeah. So you can be out there, especially on, um, you know, in recent years, they've been starting racing at 8.30 a.m. So you have to turn up 45 minutes, at least 45 minutes before that. So you, so you can get on the launch, which has to go all the way to the to, uh, around Temple Island and then back up the course. And that takes, you know, a certain amount of time. And everyone has to be in place before the first, before the umpire says go for the first race. 
So um, you've got to take it seriously, but it's, it's, you get the, just the best view of the, of the racing. And if you're a rowing fan, there's no better place to be. Okay, you know when they started using the drone at Henley? Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, some people in Remenham um, thought it was a little bit noisy. And uh, I, th I think I read this on Twitter, uh, or it might have been Rachel Quarrell or reported something like that. So, uh, they said, oh, somebody should get a shotgun. <laughs> and, and, and she said, are you joking? W with this crowd, all you need to do is shout, pull. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll come out of the back of the Range Rover. Um... <laughs> I'll try and answer your question, okay? The, the question was, did you join Stuart so you could get involved? No. I got involved um, because when I was competing at Peterborough in the late, two, in the late 90s, um, one of our club members... Um, a guy called Malcolm Davis was umpiring there and he um, also happened to be a member of Leander and he suggested that um, because Brian Colborne who was the uh, then head of the, of the team he was also there at the regatta as an umpire I think and Malcolm suggested that it's something that I might like to do because he did it when he was younger he did right. the same role when he was younger and so he, he pointed out Brian Colborne. So I went up to Brian Colborne and said, well, Malcolm Davis says that, you know, I might be okay to do this job. And so he, so he took my details and then contact, he contacted me the following year. And so each year you get invited to, to come and be a member of the signals team. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people come from the Thames Valley because it's handy for them to get there. Uh, it's, it, it got harder and harder for Emma and I to go because we would have to put ourselves up in Henley for the, for the whole week, plus a day either as well, certainly the day before as well. And it gets very, very expensive, you know, in, now, now almost ruinously so. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's difficult for people who don't live and don't, uh, who can't get accommodation near the town. But, but the benefits of being in the team are you get, you get stewards access for the whole week, for all day for the whole week. And, uh, you get a badge. It's like a thick cardboard badge with, with um, the Royal Regatta crest and the year on it. Right. And, and that gets you uh, access to, so the regatta enclosure, the stewards enclosure, the boat tent area, and also, crucially, the bit of the, you know, if you're uh, in the barn bar, sorry, not the barn, but the bridge bar, there's the towpath where the launches are. You can go along there as well. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Because we need to be able to go along there so that we can go and get on the launches. To, to, right. to get delivered to the yeah so that's a another hand, so, handy one so yeah, and and you get and you get free parking yeah and, blimey, yeah and there's a dinner on the thursday night at the remnant club paid for by the stewards which is so it's a, it's it's not it's not bad it's it's a bit like an access all 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 areas pass isn't it so the, much, you know, yeah. the benefits oh, the are definitely... they don't want the likes of us on the committee lawn we're not allowed in there all right okay all right, uh, well you know there's still I'm sure we'll we'll break down those barriers sometime within the next millennium. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a bit like the circus coming to town, and if you're a rower, and you're in Britain, going to Henley either to compete or for qualifiers or just for the day out to be involved like you are, I think that's absolutely fantastic. I think that's really fantastic. I think we did about eight years in a row, and then there was a little gap, and then we did another two or three years. So I've done quite a few regattas as a signaller. And you, and you also mentioned the floating boom, which is, uh, again, yeah. 
this completely well, new thing to me so that I didn't like know sliding, exists. Sliding, the sliding boom. boom. Sorry, all the bo- all the booms float. Yeah, hopefully. But, but, yeah. The, but this one moves. This one moves in and out. There's so so. There's a little box, and you have a boat hook. So on the downstream side, there's two booms, uh, and you slide the boom, which is upstream of you, back in between these other two, and so it stays there. So it, you pull it back into there, so that the launchers can escape off the side of the course when they've got five minute racing rather than ten minute racing, sort of after lunch on Saturday and on Sunday, yeah. because. Uh, on those occasions, the launches usually go down the course and then turn off at the um, just after the at the end of the regatta enclosure. Can, so, can I just ask? Sorry, I was just going to say we're we're talking about Henley World Regatta, and could you tell us what stewards is and what it what it means for people who actually aren't rowers who might happen across our podcast? Strictly speaking, could, could I just say, could you tell me as well? Because unlike you and Aaron, who who have this kind of like glorious happy memories of Henley and you, you love going back there and you really enjoy it's it. It's not that happy. We got hammered by Green Lake. We got our asses handed to us. I was, I've always been so wrapped up in the idea of making it to Henley and just winning a race there, which I've never managed to do. Actually being at Henley during the Royal Regatta, not racing there actually kind of makes me it. So it's all those all those things about kind of like what is stewards that I've never sort of like really allowed myself to focus on because I was just so obsessed with just like with getting there, to, you just, with getting you just there, to get trying there. to win. Yeah. So when you, when you say tell me more about stewards, what does it mean? What is it sort of as a physical chunk of geography and as an organisation? You're going to be letting me know too. So. The steward enclosure is for members and their guests, and that's essentially it. It's in terms of physical geography, the end of it is just past the finish line. So, so the bridge bar is at the at the town end, if you like. The bridge bar is at mm-hmm. the town end of the steward enclosure. At the other end of the steward enclosure, it adjoins the regatta enclosure. What you, you think it used to be called the public enclosure. So anybody can buy a uh, a ticket to go in there. It's not cheap. I think it's about twenty five quid a day. But you could go in there, and there's no dress restriction in the in the regatta enclosure, and so athletes athletes can go in there because they're allowed with their competitors' t- ticket. They're allowed to go in there in their racing kit, and so they can watch. You, you can buy um, a ticket, but it does sell out, and so you know it, there's a maximum capacity uh, for stewards. You get given along with your badge, your metal badge. You get um, you get guest badges for. Uh, you get two for the first three days of the regatta and then one for the Saturday and Sunday. And I guess it'll be next year because the regatta is going to be six days. I guess you'll get two for the first four days and then one for the, for the weekend. One each one spare for the weekend. The boat tent area is again, upstream of the stewards enclosure. And that is the, uh, that's where the athletes are and all the boats live. I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory. It's famous that the showers are freezing cold. Yeah. And, you know, you 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 guys in a know good that. way though. They they come out so powerfully. The actual sort of like physical pressure on your skin warms you up. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and it was also it was very amusing here. Ben Charles's um, scream when he realised that the showers were freezing cold. Oh, <laughs> you, you you oh you let him do that without telling him. That's such a terrible thing to do to Ben Charles. In the steward enclosure itself, you uh, 
so there's a big sign that says stewards enclosure and it's stewards apostrophe because it is the enclosure of the stewards so you know you can come a cropper there if you write it down and you put the apostrophe in the wrong place very bad form <laughs> you go you, the entrance is is that is there right under the sign as um as advertised and the uh, there's a, a cloakroom on the left where you can leave your bags if you're a signaler you can take a bag in there with you because you need things like sun cream and hats and waterproofs and that kind of stuff and there's a special cupboard where you keep it there's like a little you know like an unmarked door where you go in and out of and you make sure no one's looking when you do uh because we don't want everyone knowing about it shame i've just mentioned it on a podcast but, but anyway I, I can mean, cut it out. I can cut it out if you want. No, no, no. It's, it's just right. It's fine. No, I, th- I think we should. We, we should actually cut that out because we've actually now got a bit of insider knowledge that no one else can have. I, I, right. I love that. I don't okay. think. That, I, I don't think if we apply and we put it on our application, let, let, let us in, even though one of us is from the north, because otherwise we'll tell about the secret door. It's going to really endear <laughs> us to them. To be fair. Yeah, yeah. There's a few secret doors actually. Yeah. Um, so, so you go. So you, when you, when you go in, they have the skirt police to make sure everyone is dressed correctly. So for for gentlemen, gentlemen shall wear long trousers, a shirt, a tie, or a cravat, and a jacket. People who aren't rowers and haven't been in stewards might think that you have to be really smart, but actually, the jacket can be in any state you like, yeah. as long as it's a jacket. Because some of the Dutch rowers, when they go in there, they like as part of their club's history, they deliberately knacker their blazers. And yeah. like some of them have been handed down for generations, and some of them are barely hanging together. Yeah. But that's like a mark of how old their club is. It's like, you know, look how old my blazer is. I've been in Rome forever. And so that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And you can wear, like on your feet, you can wear pretty much what you want. Uh, because, you know, if you're on your feet all day, you know, it's best to look smart. But, the, yeah. you know, it doesn't, it's not like you have to change your shoes. You have to, you know, take your brown shoes off at six o'clock or, yeah. It's it's not that strict. It's all you've got to do is wear like basically don't look like a bum, and don't wear jeans. And for the women, they have to wear a uh, the, the hemline of their dress has to come below the knee. And yes. people, women fall foul of that all the time. I mean, you see people coming who get turned away, and they do turn them away. They 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 wear what is very obviously, and also that this normally goes with a, an extremely expensive looking hat. They're wearing an outfit that looks like it costs several thousand dollars. And they will turn them away because, you know, there's no way, even with the old uh, skirt police shuffle, because some girls wear skirts and they sort of shuffle them down, you know, with elastic waist and they shuffle them down a bit so that they go. And then as soon as they get in there, they roll them up again so you can see their thighs. You used to see the women walking towards the um, regatta enclosures and and they would be kind of shuffling their dresses down towards their knees. And once they got in, they'd, they'd then shuffle them back up again. Yeah. And on one of the days that, that I was there, I, I saw three or four ladies being led out because they've fallen foul of, of their, their skirts were too short. Yeah, um, there, there, there are gentlemen in there who are the, kind of, I'm not sure, quite, quite sure. I, I saw a documentary once about Henley and I think some, they, they were being uh, addressed by, before the regatta by one of the stewards. And I think some of them were scouts from Oxford University. They're the people who look after the students, or used to, I, you know. But this was from several decades ago, more many decades ago. I don't know who, I, I don't know where they, where the guys come from, but they're very discreet. You barely notice them. They're, they're not supposed to be noticed. They wear black suits mm. and bowler hats, and so they'll guard, for instance, the stairs to the members' stand because of the two grandstands. One of them mm. is for members only, so you can only go in there if you're an actual member, rather than a guest, a, mem- a, a, a guest of a member. And the other one is for members and their guests. Mm. 
and then you have the floating grandstand or the yeah the floater uh which was replaced probably about 10 years ago now so the bottom of that is for uh, stewards and their guests and upstairs is for members right. and i don't think members guests can go in the top in in the floater at all uh and, and that's where Peter Cusack, who's, who's uh, river control, that's he hangs out at the, at the back at the, at the town at the town end of the floater, so he can see all the way down the course, and he's in control with everybody. He's in control with all the umpires' launches. Uh, later in the week, the person on the on the quarter mile signal gets a radio. They have to inform race control when the crews are. Uh, uh, they just say crews at quarter mile, just so he knows the progress of the regatta. Uh, you know the progress of the regatta. Uh, that's all you say. There's never a conversation. It's just cruise a quarter mile storm. So Peter Cusack is, and he's the calmest man. You know, there could be a, you know, a herd of buffalo charging towards the regatta, and he just say, "Give me two minutes," and and it it gets sorted. I suppose when you're when you're kind of overseeing that, what you actually want is someone who is incredibly calm, because if something happens, you don't want someone to go. Everybody panic! Run for the exit! Yeah, know, he's completely know. unflappable. I do remember the um, the gentleman with the with the bowler hat. I think I, there were three or four years where I went either as a as a competitor or, or or just after you know finishing. When I went back, the same gentleman at the um, the boat tents went, "Oh, lovely to see you back, sir. What are you competing in this year?" And I thought, "Oh my God, he's remembered me. I have a memorable face." And then. I realized about two or three years in that um, he probably just said that to everybody who walked past him. Nice to see you back, sir. How are you? What, what are you competing in? Is Stuart so exclusive because it's near the finish line, so you, you, get, all, you get all the tight finishes? Or, or has it just become such a social thing that, it, that the, the actual exclusivity of being in Stuart has made it more exclusive and, and more people kind of want to be part of it because of that? Because it, it is kind of, it's at the sharp end of the course, but it is actually, it's, there's a lot of social cachet uh, attached to it. Yeah, there is. I only applied for stewards membership five, four, six years ago. So I got elected this year. Right. Congratulations. So actually, it's five years. Is, for someone who hasn't competed at the Regatta proper, five years is pretty quick. But it, it is great to see the finishes. And it's, it's, it's the, the, the best races are usually the finals of the PE and the junior events. Yeah. So the four, the four leader PE and the Jubilee now. That's when it's loudest and you get, uh, I mean, for instance, Emma, my other half, she, one year she was almost sent flying by a horde of Abingdon blazer, blazer wearing boys running up the enclosures and then out the door and round some boat tent because their crew was, was going to win the PE. And they were completely beside that. Well, they, they should have been beside themselves, but they are actually yeah. behaving rather badly. But, you know, you can kind of understand it. Yeah, they um, got caught up. They got caught up in the excitement. They got caught up in the moment. Yeah, so it was it's pandemonium. It's, yeah, they were like a they were they were like a herd of buffalo. So I'm sure Peter Cusack was probably keeping. Was probably going. Just give me two minutes. Yeah, yeah. Just give me two minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just get the buffalo trapped out. <laughs> <laughs> Pass me the buffalo gun. <laughs> other, other schools are available. Other schools are available, and they, yeah, and they should yeah, not be hunted with, with with buffalo rifles. No, uh, certainly, certainly not Latimer because that's um, that's Mr. Phelps' territory. Oh, okay. fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so you're talking about the exclusivity of the place. It's um, I have I heard an anecdote that um, this is maybe a hundred years ago. A lady was heard to say, "Henley would be wonderful were it not for all the horrid rowing men." <laughs> another person who said 
uh, well, this is wonderful, but the, the, the end of the garden appears to be flooded. <laughs> um, so I, I, think, I think more now than ever, it's less, oh, we go to Henley because it's Henley. And now it's more, I think it's, it's definitely not as snobbish as people would think. Okay. Ab- absolutely not. It's definitely not. The stewards are very approachable people. I think in the days of Peter Coney, when he was the chairman, I think it was because he, he was extremely posh and, you know, sp- spoke like this. Was, I, look at this donut stand. We really shouldn't have such things here. The moment I'm not chairman, I'm going to swim across and demolish the whole belly lot of it. So okay. it's, it's not like that anymore. Um, so the, the people who are members are people who want to be members because uh, it supports the regatta. The, 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 the fees that we pay yeah. go to help the upkeep of the regatta and uh, we're in the bars and in the restaurants and people spend money there and it, and it yeah. perpetuates the regatta. And especially for people who have rode there. And for me, it's, the, it's having been a signaller and having enjoyed the regatta, which makes me want to be a member and then you know, give something back to it. So I think that's why people, you know, I don't think really social cachet has a great deal. I think if you're there for the social cachet, I don't think you should be there at all, pretty much. That's, that's kind of where I was driving towards, because um, obviously I'm, I'm very aware of the history of Leander and the history of British rowing, and, you know, especially in, in the days of professional watermen and gentlemen amateurs and that kind of thing. But there does seem to be more of a feel about certainly that, area of British rowing. Henley was always part of the English summer. You had Wimbledon, you had Ascot, you had you had Henley, you had Glyndebourne. But there's a real feel now, or I, I certainly get the sense that people who are involved with the regatta are aware that they're almost like the curators of the regatta. So they're, they're kind of perpetuating it and making it more, more open and inclusive. It just gives it a much wider scope for the future. And it, it- yeah, and just like, to, you know, I'd just like to sort of end on it. For this section, I'd just like to end on the the, the regatta itself, the organisation. Like the, the the regatta is like a swan; it just proceeds, but it doesn't it, like just like a swan. It doesn't flap about under the water. It yeah. proceeds. Everything happens exactly on time. The rowers know exactly where they stand. They know exactly what they've got to do. If they would need to know anything, then there's always somebody to ask. You know, a steward because there's a yeah. steward of the boat tent area, at least one, and you know, mm. if not two. So the regatta is, is there for the rowers. That was my experience when I, when, when I was it's, competing. That's, so it's, it's all like uh, the social side and the, and the stewards enclosure, that's all very well, but the whole thing's there because the competition is happening. Yeah. And that's the thing. The, the, big, the, the big thing about it is that some people end up with a red box and a brilliant photograph. Yeah. You know, that's, that's essentially it. And the, the amount of organisation that goes in is absolutely enormous. There are, so there's, there's press people, there are the stewards themselves, there's the committee of management, there are the signallers, there are the um, communicators from the back of the launch, there are the catering staff, there are the bar people, there are the people who put the fruit in the pins cups and then put them on a shelf behind the bar people so they can just pick them up, fill them with lemonade, wallop. There are the skirt police, there are the gentlemen in the bowler hats, there are the car park attendants, there are... The, 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 the team of people who actually install the course and remove it afterwards. They're the people who paint the thing every year. They paint all of the, the piles. They're the people who erect the, the boat tents and all the, you know, the whole regatta is constructed each year and taken yeah. down each year. There are innumerable people involved with it. And I think each of those, especially if they've done it for some time, and you know, the reason I feel part of Henley and the reason why it was so gutting that it didn't happen this year was because 
all, all of these people who are all of these teams and like the, the regatta is the sum or it's, no, it's, 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 it's a brilliant example of something being greater than the sum of its parts but its parts are myriad yeah I think that's a brilliant way of putting it a, a fantastic way of putting it yeah oh. I, I think I think we should leave Henley there because I think that sums it up perfectly I wanted to ask though and I know Lewin did you've been a signalman umpiring because our experience of umpiring is people shouting at us when we're getting ready for a race. Well, I'll try, and keep, I'll try and keep this a bit more brief. I got into umpiring because I was recommended by Malcolm Davis, uh, the guy who I mentioned earlier, uh, to, who got me into signalling. He said that I should volunteer to be a marshal at the head of the river race. And so I did. And because I had RYA level two, I was put in a boat patrolling Barnes Bridge with Bill Mitchell of Tradesmen. I, I must have done something right because... Um, Bill was apparently quite impressed with me, and he said to Malcolm that we think this guy, you know, we think this guy should, we should get him waving flags. I think is the term they used. So Malcolm suggested to me, "Have you thought about training to be umpire?" And I thought, "Wow, what me? Really?" And I thought, "Yeah, definitely. I love some of that." But being shouted at is you. You should only really get shouted at if I think that's kind of the umpire's fault. If they have to shout at you, then they should have done something beforehand, which should have prevented them from having to shout at you. I think the umpiring these days is a lot more professional than it used to be. Um, the, the, we've always had to do exams so you get qualified as, as an umpire. Like for instance, when, when I used to start races, um, I used to try to model it on what they do at international events. And some of, some of the people who, who had been umpires for years, let, let's say they were starting a, a race at, at York. They, let's say it was York against Sheffield, they would go, York, Sheffield, attention, go! Like that, and that just builds tension in the crews. And so what I tried to do, like when I was umpiring at Peterborough, when I was a starter at Peterborough, I would say, St. Neots, Peterborough, Sheffield, Newcastle, attention. And then you raise the flag, go. And it's, it's all nice and calm. It makes everyone's nice and calm. They know where they stand. And, you know, it's... If you listen to the umpires on the World Championships or on the Olympic Games, it's extremely monotone, New Zealand, United States, attention. That's what I tried to do. So, yeah, in, in umpiring, I, um, I umpired. Actually, my first umpiring gig was at Doncaster Regatta, which was 10 years to the week of my first appearance as a competitor in a boat, which was a nice uh, square of the circle. There you go. And the umpire of my first race turns out was Malcolm Davis. <laughs> this guy's name keep, keeps cropping up. Did he remember uh, you? Oh yeah. Oh blimey! There you go. <laughs> That's nice. That's great because I mean I have been shouted at by umpires, but I also have had very very calm umpires, and I have to say that I prefer the very very calm umpires because usually in a boat, if you're if you're rowing, you know, past novice level. You're doing your best to, to, you know, to either get on the state boat or to, or to get yourself lined up. And you're doing your best to do what the umpire wants. And you're already getting ready to race, so you're already up a height, as we say in the north. So you're already kind of, you're already keyed up. And the last thing you want is somebody going, go! What else does an umpire need to do? I mean, what are they looking out for? What, what's, what's their role beyond getting people on the state boat and getting them off the line? Right, well, the, the first and foremost, being an umpire is a safety brief. Okay, it's, it's to do with the safety. The first, first and foremost, everything at a regatta is to do with the safety of competitors. And secondly, it's fairness of racing. And that is essentially it. 
everything else is window dressing. You have to learn the rules that you have to look, you have to know the rules of racing. I mean, I, I knew, when I took my exam, I knew, I knew I could virtually quote the entire thing from, from heart. So you need to know the exact start procedure. For instance, there are little things that you might not notice as a competitor. So if you're lining up a, if you're like, if you're um, asking a, a, a bunch of crews, four crews at Peterborough say to approach the start, you will say, let's say city of, you will say city of Sheffield lane one. What you don't say is lane one city of Sheffield. Okay. Because if you say lane one city of Sheffield, they don't hear the lane one bit, but as soon as you say city of Sheffield, they go, Oh, that's us. What, what, what do we do? What? So you say their name first, that gets their attention. And then you say lane one. So, Oh, that's us lane one. Off we go. Thank you very much. So that's just a little thing, you know, that's a, that's what you do. And, and you, you tell, you tell the people what they need to do to progress in the, I mean, it's obvious in a two lane, you know, on a two lane regatta course, the winner goes through and the other one doesn't, but, but in, in multi-lane, um, it might be the first to the final and then the other three to a rep or two or two of the others to a rep. So you would inform them of what the outcome of the race will be and what you, what you are required to do in this race to progress in the regatta. So that's part, and then you just tell them that over the over the uh, you know the loudspeaker, and then you perform the start procedure. But Henley Royal Regatta is not run under British rowing rules, so the start procedure at Henley is different from that of British rowing events. Yeah, in in, in which way? I mean, what, well, what are the what are the key differences that I don't know? Maybe rowers themselves should be aware of. Well, it's. Well, at Henley, they they say that let's say it's um, Nereus and Oxford Brooks. They will say, they will say Nereus and Brooks. When I see that you are both straight and ready, I will start you like this. Then they raise the rolled up red flag, and demonstrate the start. And they do it slowly, so that people don't know it's a, so people know that it isn't the actual start. And then they say, get ready, please. And then the next thing they say is. The next thing they say is attention go because when they do see that they are straight and ready, they raise the un- unfurled red flag and then it's just attention go. Whereas the British rowing events, you do a call over, so it's just um, you've called them to their stations and then you do a call over. So you say uh, City of Sheffield, Bradford, Peterborough City, uh, whoever else, attention. Then you raise the flag and then go. There's no there's no telling you what's going to happen. Yeah. It's just everyone should know that that's what's going to happen in a British rowing event. Is Henley different so they can keep boats moving down the, the course because obviously there's a, a lot of racing to get through in the early days. Or is it just different because that's always been the way that they've done it at Henley? And they've just I, think, kind of... I think that's it. I think, I think it's just, that's just the way they've always done it. So is, is there anything that, I mean, other than most things, is there anything a racing rower should know about what, the umpire wants to see from them. So if, if you're going out and saying, how should I be behaving when I'm under the control of the umpire? Is, is there something that they should be okay. doing right and sh- or more to the point should not be doing? Well, as, a, as an oarsman, you need, should do very few things. You should be prepared to race. So you should have the correct kit. You, um, preferably uniform but, but this only applies above the waist by the way oh, and it doesn't apply at all and it uh, doesn't apply at all in head races what you like in head races mm. 
Um, you should turn up on time. You should not argue with the umpires because if they're saying something to you, they're saying it for a reason, and it might be a reason that you that you don't know about. Yep. So, so you should do what you're told. Okay. And if you don't do what you're told, then you might receive an official warning. And and when uh, when people like that I knew found out that I was an umpire, they go, "Oh, that's brilliant! You can dis- disqualify people." And I was and I thought, well, no, because if I get to the position where I have to disqualify someone, then I've done something wrong. So, you know, I, I should have done something beforehand. The last thing you want to do as an umpire is disqualify anybody. I've never disqualified anybody. Then all you have to do as a rower is keep keeping your keeping your own water, because if there's a if there's a clash, and you're out of your water, then there shall be a disqualification. At Henley, that's not quite the same because everything that happens at Henley is up to the stewards. They can they can the stewards have absolute carte blanche over what happens at Henley Roller Regatta. They can do what they like. But in a British rowing event, if you clash if you clash with your opposition in their water, then you get disqualified. So again, coming back to that yes. idea of just keeping the racing fair. Yeah, but also as a, as an umpire, you use your discretion differently depending on the kind of event that you're umpiring at. Now, if you're umpiring a championship race, then you expect higher standards from the oarsmen and women. Whereas at Bradford, that which is deemed, I'm not sure if the term is still used, but it used to be deemed a primary regatta. So, for instance, I was I was doing, I was on the start of Bradford one time, and it was a a novice masters, and it was a new category, a novice masters. So these guys were in their thirties, but it was their first race, and they were you could actually see the water rippling because of the vibrations from their tension, and a guy full started, and under normal circumstances, and it was only briefly. I mean, I actually you know it was just before I said go, and the flag had dropped, but because it's primary regatta, he was like absolutely bricking it. And so is his opponent. But rather than warn him and give him, give him an official warning, which would have just ratcheted up his tension even more, I decided to call it a faulty start and just call them and then start again as if it was the first time. So you have that discretion to do that, whereas you wouldn't do that if it was the final of elite pairs or something like that, you know, somewhere else. It's a great example of using, dis- of using discretion to just bring everyone back, bring the tension down a bit. Okay, let's just this again and but, but it obviously fits the context too i've got some funny rumors about the uh the lee rowing club and um their attitude to false starts but that's are, they, possibly... are they are they libelous because we, we i mean i'm aware that some of our comments about our australian cousins have, have probably <laughs> invited down under yeah don't forget don't forget that um other other orange wearing clubs are available <laughs> yeah. Especially, yeah especially from the, especially from the netherlands Possibly it's for for another podcast, but um, sh- shall we say that during um, the latter part of the 90s and the early parts of this century, apparently um, the coaches at the at the Lee had a relaxed view to precisely when you should start the race and train their crews accordingly. So, uh, so you, you you know you've heard the that heard the go on the B of the bang or. The girl. Yeah, it was. It was more so, like, so, did they go, go on the A on the A of attention? It, I, th- I think it was more go on the N of attention. Uh, but, but but the 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 story was, and I, I do have this from a reliable source that they were deliberately co- coached to false start. I couldn't possibly comment on that. And 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 the uh, th- this was a long time ago, and the the Lee is a very different club. I I am reliably informed. But they were coached to false start 
the argument being that most times if you do it not too early you won't be called back and you've got a stroke up on the oppo anyway and even if you are called back you just have to get it right the next time nothing else will happen to you we need a debate on coaching at some point on this podcast because we would yeah. never condone that ever i mean and obviously you're only saying this because they beat you at one point using what you think I, I've ne- honestly i've never raced the lead it, it was just oh, okay. a, certainly when i got in, in into rowing there, there are rumors of kind of loosened top nuts and kind of a very very harsh regime which i'm sure you know other orange wearing clubs i'm sure have at times had very harsh regimes but um apparently at that sort of period of time if you went to a race and you didn't win you had to write a letter of apology to the club committee that was read out at the annual general meeting. It, it, it's something along those lines. So ab- absolute kind of like, you know, really intense, really quite. You do realize under those rules, you and I would have been writing so many letters, we wouldn't have had time to train a row. It would be, yeah, that's probably why they, they stopped. But at the time also, they were quite a successful club. If I can just butt in at this uh, juncture, I think, um, I, I think false starting has largely, I mean, you very rarely see them anymore. You yes, certainly sorry. don't see them at international level. I remember at the 90, watching the 1994 World Championships from Indianapolis. Um, it's where Redgrave and Pinston were being led by Strapoloff and Holtenbein, and then they completely turned them over. That was mm-hmm. an awesome race. But, but in the um, Redgrave and Pinston false started, and they would cut the, the, whole, the whole field was called back, and they just like, Pinson was just nodding, yeah, okay, fine. So I think they would they possibly, uh, you know. They were going to go hard. God forbid they did it on purpose, God forbid. Mm-hmm. But um, that's what that's what happened. But in another race, I think it might have been the lightweight eight because that was an absolutely quality crew, and the GB won the gold medal, stroked by Toby Hessian from I think it was a crew based out of the uh, out of Knox Knox County. They were an absolutely awesome crew, and the whole field were given because the whole field went before went before the go or before the gun or whatever they used at the time. I think it was a flag and a go actually from the star tower. So the whole field were called back, and they and they, <laughs> it was, you know, different it was, uh, different times, different different moors. But they hung a, a discus, no, not a discus, a, a frisbee, like an actual orange frisbee, on the lane marker of every crew in the thing. So, <laughs> so they all knew that they were they'd all been given a, a warning. So, but you don't see that now. You don't see false starts in international Roman anymore. I mean, to, to wrap things up, because this has been brilliant so far, and, and sort of very much what we were saying, this was us hoping to learn stuff about like the history of rowing and like, what it's doing at the moment. It's a question I asked Di at the end of the interview. What is, at the moment, what is rowing, do you think, doing right? What could it be doing better? And, you know, where is it going in the future as a sport in this country? What's it, what's it doing right? Okay, I think... Uh... There's a lot more transparency about what goes on in events. People, I think people know where they stand a bit more. The umpiring is of a, of a higher quality than it's ever been. The coaching is more professional than it's ever been. When, with the introduction of British rowing technique, that got away from the idea. Or the, So let's say there used to be the Eastern style or the Abingdon style or the Radley style or the Northern style or the Oxford style or whatever. Now, people should learn. British rowing technique and that helped in that certainly in the GB squad everybody is coached to row the same and it helped at the um, 
at the Rio Olympics because they needed a, a super sub, didn't they? One of the races, and that meant because that guy could could get in, and, and I think they got... I mean, originally, they were favourites of the gold, but I think they still got a silver medal, and that's because they all trained to the same template, and so they're interchangeable between crews, and there's more of that these days, so people tend to like just row it's it's better for you biomechanically it mean it's saves you from getting injured you know you used to see guys with you know just curved spines you know especially germans for some reason they when they got to sort of my age they couldn't stand up straight and so i think that's one of the things that's really changed british rowing technique um, being being coached and also coaches being qualified by you know doing british rowing qualifications so that people are singing more of the same hymn sheet it used to be the case i think that you were just a coach because you were the best rower in the club or you'd been to this, like let's say you'd rowed in the boat race and you went to this club and you, you were made a coach because of that. Not to say that somebody who's has been coached by a boat race coach is not going to be a, necessarily a good coach, but the oarsman doesn't necessarily make the coach. Um, good training and I think a holistic approach does make a good coach. And uh, I think the hang the hang them and flog them things are going out the window. You know, you need to do it sensibly and you've got to think about the uh, like what's what's going to happen to the people when they're no longer competing and it's make sure that they can still, you know, make sure they're not crippled for the rest of their life. So I think that's, Indeed, that's yeah. a, big, a big positive. As far as where the sport's going, I mean, really all I can say is, uh, I mean, domestically, I think the small regattas will always continue. I mean, it's a shame nothing's happened this year, but, you know, that, that, will, that, won't, ever, that won't always be the case. I think Henley Royal Regatta's uh, moving with the times, including more women's events. And I think it strengthens Henley, Henley Women's Regatta rather than detracts from it because it will attract very high quality crews, especially from the United States, who will come over and do both, both regattas. True. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think that, I, th- I think it will raise the quality of the rowing. I mean, it's already very high quality at Henley Women's, but it will just increase the quality even more. Um. In international rowing, um, I think the days of the lightweight are over. I'm pretty pretty sure that for the next yeah. games, there's. I think there's going to be one. Is it just the single? No, just the doubles. Is it? It's just yeah. It's just the lightweight just doubles, the doubles the, and for, after for that, the Tokyo Olympics, and then it's nothing, and then. Yeah. So no. 20, 2024 should be coastal rowing instead. Yeah. So. Uh, and I think you touched on this in one of your other podcasts. So I'm not going to go over the same ground about you know do we have to does it have to be two thousand meters you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's that. So maybe we would just have to be adaptable if we want to say as an Olympic sport we've got to be we've got to run with the times. You know they keep it they keep adding um, new events to the Olympics. I mean I can't, personally I can't. I mean, this is another conversation, but I can't understand why why got certainly golf beggars belief. So because we won a gold medal at it. <laughs> it's not a, it's not an olympic sport it's not the zenith of the sport anyway don't get me started on that right but but for, for instance they're introducing climbing right so sport climbing yeah now, now that fulfills the olympic, the olympic ideal they're superb athletes and they and they go high they go fast and they're extremely strong and so you can't get more olympic than that so i've got no problem with that at all you know that's a brilliant addition to the olympic program you know, just, and Sheffield will be completely empty because it's full of amazing rock climbers. So, yeah. you know, so we'll be able to we'll be able to get down Eccleston Road uh, fine when when all of our Sheffield-based climbers are competing at, at, at that game. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm um, just just the last question. So, what do you think that sort of what is there an easy win to make rowing better in Great Britain? 
on the spot, I generally can't think of one. That, that... I think that pretty much wraps things up. Terence, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for um, coming to talk to us. Um, we really appreciate your time. And I think we've both learned a hell of a lot. And hopefully, hopefully all our listeners will learn too. Um, and, and we actually have more than three or four listeners at the moment. So, so we're, we're quite chuffed. Right, that's great. I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. And my palms have almost stopped sweating. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my palms aren't sweating now, but my feet are actually in the sun and they are basically melting. My, my, my broken toe is throbbing somewhat. So I, we're, thank you for talking to us. You, ju- you just need to have it off. That, that, I, that, I, that I, toe I, has I, caused too much trouble. It, it took you away from the dive in the interview. It, it is absolutely time to have it off. There's, there's... I, I just think it's a, it's a warning. If you've ever been a rower, never take up running because it just leads to injuries you didn't get on the water. Absolutely. That's all I'm going to say. But thank you so much for coming on. It's genuinely been, been fantastic. Great. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a ple- it's a pleasure because essentially what we've been doing is what you two do together is banging on about rowing. And then, that, the, that's the, the, literally why I started this. I just thought, you know, we, 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 last... we, can, we can put this in a bottle. I, I, get, I get very few opportunities to just, just to leather on about... I mean, for Henley at home, we had um, some of our neighbours around, just, just, just two of them. And they're not rowing people. One of them actually is a golfist, but you know you can't hold that against him. We've stolen your Saturday morning. It is officially midday. Go and get a cup of coffee and a baked sandwich because that's exactly what I'm going to do. Okay. Oh yes, yes. And yes. thank you very much for talking to us again. All right. See you later, gents. See you later. Take care. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you, Terence. Bye. And that was that was our chat with Terence. The thing I really took from that when Terence was talking about stewards, talking about being a member of stewards. Everyone in rowing I've talked to about this sort of acts as though it's this immensely arcane, unknowable process. And actually, what it seems like is quite simple. If you are part of the sport, if you help out in the sport, if you volunteer at the regatta, you know, all, all these ideas that, that it's this arcane, Masonic organization that operates purely on privilege and um, a sense of exclusivity, it's not really true. I love the idea that there are secret doors in and out of stewards. And the next time I go there, I will be looking for them. Um, So yeah, I'll probably get thrown out of of the regatta at some point. Yeah, but to be fair, that's because neither you or I are actually members yet. But and they're very hot on things like that. I mean, we're not yeah. we're not going to be pulled by the skirt police because I, I always make sure that my skirt is, is well below the knee and I, I, my hats always match, of course. When I first went to Henley with Agecroft, I was, it was like a dream come true. You know, Henley is... What, the first time you visited the South? The first, it was the first time <laughs> that I'd, I'd been allowed past the Angel of the North. Um, they stamped my passport. They said, you can come in, but you've only got till sundown. Or we, we, we released the hounds. It was, it, was, it was so good to breathe clean air away from the smoggy factories and chimneys of the Tyne, the Tyne, the foggy Tyne, the queen of all the rivers. If you're a rower, Henley is like, it's the equivalent of Wimbledon for a tennis player. But I have to admit, I was, I was somewhat intimidated. What I realized over time is the stewards aren't there to intimidate. It's exactly what Terence said. They are there to help the rowers 
to go and do what they came here to do. They are there to support and deliver the regatta. And actually, when you get to know them, they are the most approachable people. If you put into the sport and if you give back to the sport, which is, which is if we love rowing and we love our sport, that's what we all do. That's the sort of person that they're looking for. They're not looking for someone who's flaunting their steward's badge. They're looking for someone who wants to deliver the best experience for the sportsmen and sportswomen and the spectators that they possibly can. And I will say one thing. I'm, I'm determined to try and get Terence back because, and there are all these other things that he had to tell us. He, he, you know, there's all these aspects that he knows about from being an umpire in terms of the safety aspects of rowing and now that may sound like like the world's most boring thing but actually you know if you're a coach if you're a rower if you're a captain of a boat understanding these uh, uh, these concepts is probably going to be really really valuable um I, I just want to take the opportunity to say thank you tez it was great when we were rowing and most rowers will know this you're very focused on your boat on your training on what you have to do the races you're doing, the steps you're taking in your season. If we just take a look outside of our boat, we're all doing the same sport. And it's a, it's a sport that we all curate and look after together. And I think Terence has been a fantastic curator of the sport. And that was, uh, that was something that really came through. Indeed.